Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 616. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Oh, yes, we're on the. The throes of the Christmas spirit there. And if you're sharing this Christmas beauty, well, happy Christmas. If you're doing well, still happy, happy times in December. Now, it doesn't normally kick off for me Christmas or in the, in the, in the Starship Sofa world until I get me little Christmas card from Dr. Amy H. Sturgis. And it came. A few days ago, and I've got it here. Let's go, Amy. Happy Christmas! And I'll never, you know, typical meal there. Never send any cards, but let's just get into this. And it says on the back, there's a little stamp. A long time ago, on a holiday far, far away. <laughs> right, let's just. Oh, I, I love getting these cards off from Amy. Oh yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, Amy, that's fantastic. On the front cover, <laughs> with a Christmas hat on, like you know, like the the fluffy white and the bauble and the red. You've got Governor Tarkin. You know, this is from A New Hope, Star Wars. There, and it says, "You may tinsel when ready." You know, yes, the play on "You may fire when ready." Oh, oh man, Amy, that is fantastic. That I love it to be honest. <gasps> Dear Tony, Merry Christmas to you and yours. Send you the best wishes for a brilliant 2020 and a big hugs from across the pond. Amy H. Amy, Merry Christmas. The card's in the post. <laughs> As usual. Yeah, it's right. Let's get back on some, some serious stuff there, some, some science fiction. So the day show is, like I say, 616, and the story we're playing is The Alien Agent by James Edward O'Brien, an original to Starship Sofa. James Edward O'Brien grew up in northern New Jersey, where he graduated from Dungeons and Dragons to punk rock to modernist lit and weird fiction. His short stories and poetry have appeared in Intergalactic Medicine Show, The Literary Hatchet, and Triangulation Dark Skies Anthology. He lives in Far Rockaway, New Jersey, or New York, should I say, with his wife and three rescue dogs. Follow Jim on Twitter. 
And there's a little link there to Jim. And the story is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds from his secret volcano lair in Minnesota. He narrates podcasts and leases his soul to a corporate America. He has previously recorded for Farfetch Fables and the Cursed Inn. And you can find him on Twitter as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Alien Agent by James Edward O'Brien The taxi touched down just outside the reservation. Er, they're all missing faces, the driver shivered. Zanane considered whether or not it was possible to miss something you never had in the first place. Pigs don't miss their wings, nor people their antlers. A dispatcher's voice hissed across the radio. Now they breathe, then. Through their skin, like friggin' frogs or something said the driver. Shoot, even frogs got mouths to eat with, the dispatcher chortled. Not them. They feed off sunlight, moonlight after dark, something akin to photosynthesis. How is it they talk to each other, then? Sign language? The dispatcher's rasp was lost beneath a wave of static. The driver scratched at her tawny bob. Got me. She turned to Zanane. Your stop, officer. Agent Zanane nodded towards the driver. She hopped down into the bog. The agent hid the crown of her oblong head beneath a knotted kerchief. Her teeth resembled baleen more than anything simian. She was the Bureau's only psychic stationed this far out. Zanane worked an astrolong over her do-rag. The beaked respirator was a lousy fit. She'd reconfigured the adjustable strap to compensate for the fact that her ears were all internal. The taxi bucked back toward the heavens, rippling the knee-deep, brackish waters beneath it. Swamp seeped over the tops of Zanane's jackboots. She sloshed ahead with methodical intention so as not to lose one in the mire. Sudden, soundless voices rose like a gnat cloud inside her head. They crescendoed as she approached the sun-roofed cranogs crowding the fen. Zanane's astralung masked the sulfurous stench of the place. Her exposed flesh tingled as her skin respired the rancid air. Set off from the main housing tract, she spotted the derelict palafite that served as the makeshift base of ops for the Bureau of Alien Affairs on planet. There was a wormy slat of wood nailed just above the door with Home Sweet Home scrawled across it. Zanane climbed the stair. She wriggled out of her waterlogged boots and left them outside the door. She pushed past heavy skeins of mosquito netting into what for the duration of her post, would serve as both her workspace and living quarters. A makeshift clothesline strung with moldy fatigues bisected the tiny room. The bunker bore the hallmarks of a life diverted, mortars, spoons, and a verdigris still for cooking up toad tar. Some waterlogged scratch pads and an old keyboard jimmy-rigged with shorted-out steno screen. It was an anticlimactic homecoming. Her mother had been one of them, or so the prioress at the orphanage told her. They'd known next to nothing about the man who sired her, other than the fact that he was human. Zanane was a half-breed, an anomaly. Prior to her conception, it was thought the two species, humans and dreamers, were incapable of coupling. The lab coach theorized dreamers might possess hyper-reactive reproductive systems that evolved, mutated, when prompted by a sudden change in environs or a singular traumatic event, 
How she'd come to be was secondary. The fact remained that Zanane was the first, and only one, of her kind. Dreamers spoke a language of dream gestures, a vivid mental landscape of conveyance undecipherable to the human mind. The telepathy she'd inherited from her mother gave her a direct pipeline into the dreamer's collective consciousness and a leg up on the agents who'd come before her. It had been a private hunting dozer that made first contact. Blue bloods shot into space, plied with liquor, hand cannons, and the promise of hunting varmints the likes of which had never been seen back home. There were a couple biologists among them for the ride, two shills from off-world fish and game. They offered the scientific community its earliest physiological sketches of the dreamers, eyes on either side of their heads, big, brown, and leperine. They seemed to be somewhere between highly evolved plants and vegetative amphibians. It was not outwardly evident if, or how, the varmints spoke, ate, or breathed. For all intents and purposes, they were regarded as clay pigeons, just the thing the caravan needed to slake their bloodlust. The hunters got to shooting. A week aboard the dozer had them stir-crazy and trigger-happy. During the salad days of extraterrestrial diplomacy, humanity operated under the misguided presumption that any species worth its salt evolved to communicate via sound, verbal cues, and gestures just as humans had. A misconception at the root of no small amount of interplanetary discord. After that initial cull, the D-O-W-F-N-G shills tagged the corpses and doctored up a hypothesis as to why the varmints were fair game. In truth, very little wasn't fair game when you possessed the scratch to launch yourself beyond the stars, just outside the reach of societal convention. For several years after, the Dreamers existed as little more than zoological curiosities and scientific journals, a well-culled herd for those moneyed enough to charter deep-space hunting dozers. Back home, the lab coats made a habit of slicing and dicing their way through any specimens they could get their hands on. It turned out that the varmint's hides were one big photosynthetic membrane that allowed them to feed off the solar and lunar rays of their planet, permeable to oxygen and carbon dioxide, too. There were males and females, possessing both nervous and reproductive systems impossibly similar to those of simians. It was around that time that the nightmares started back home. A collective SOS sent courtesy of the extraterrestrial varmints right down into humanity's collective unconsciousness. Psychic shards bombarded the whole of humanity as it slept, shared nightmares that resounded in the waking conscious. That's when the military officially christened them Dreamers. That's when the general populace got their wake-up call forcibly tuned into the fact that somewhere along the line, a caravan of trophy killers had deemed a sentient, intelligent people game. Once the hunts were verboten, the nightmares ended, though the nightmare of the acts that preceded that first psychic contact lingered. Most humans found it difficult to reconcile that it had not been the capacity of the dreamers to feel and suffer that brought an end to their exploitation. It had only been their ability to finally find a means of expressing it that gave humanity pause. This was all Zanane gleaned of her history. She'd spent a lifetime feeling like some unholy union of meat and butcher, predator and prey. She wondered if that was why she never dreamt. She splashed her face and looked in the mirror. All she could see was ugly.
This assignment put her light years away from the pitying stare she'd grown accustomed to, though. And that's all she'd wanted. They'd never been unkind, the humans. But it was their eyes that always told the story that dare not cross their lips. Her own eyes blinked back at her through the mirror, wide as tea saucers and deeply set on opposite sides of her wide, viridescent face. She pushed past the mosquito netting and settled upon her rickety stoop. As a child, she'd been mesmerized by the accounts of ascetics and hermits she'd pillaged from the prioress's library. The simplicity, the spiritual nakedness, of a life committed to duty and devotion. She thought, for a fleeting moment, that here might be the place for it. But there was another thought that had been needling away at the back of her brain, a drive that had kept her lonely as an echo for far too long. She let one simple thought drift out beyond the Cranog tracks like a punctured balloon. I'm home. She paused for a moment, stomach muscles clenched tight, but there were no whispers to welcome her back. The simians' fix for fossil fuels, coupled with the monetary compensation the dreamers received for the wholesale butchery that had occurred upon first contact, made them a prosperous people. On paper. Extraction companies threw billions around for exclusive rights to the nutrient-rich bogs that peppered the planet. Humanity liked to keep their resources finite, so they could be measured, doled out, and controlled more easily. They'd discovered eons ago that there was little profit to be made in renewability. A finite resource is an expensive one. But there was no amount of money that could mend a poison planet, and decades of spills and fracturing transformed the dreamer's world into one sprawling, toxic wetland. As a race predisposed to telepathy and dreamweaving, they burrowed more deeply into the cradle of their mindscapes, that psychic fortress unreachable and untainted by their human neighbors. Their physical forms inhabited the reservations, or safe zones, ordained by the corporations. Reservations which, in its eternally entrepreneurial spirit, humanity plied with psychopharmaceuticals to ease the stressors and anxieties of displacement. Toad Tar was the street name for it. Water-soluble so the dreamers could pass it directly through their skin. It left them hooked and complacent, and made the pharmaceutical companies a killing in the process, an additional profit stream for humanity once the planet itself had been tapped of its resources. Boxed pallets of toad tar, stacked floor to ceiling, dominated a whole wall of Zanane's humid little shanty. One of her duties as an on-planet agent was to ensure that the tar was rationed out in a lawful and prudent manner. Poison in, poison out. Home, she chuckled to herself. No more familiar than any other random rock floating around the exosphere. Now that she was here, all she wanted to do was scream. She stepped back out onto the stoop and drew a deep breath. It dizzied her to take all that oxygen directly into her lungs. No matter how thick and sulfurous the air, diffusing it through her skin had a much gentler kick. The dreamer's thoughts drifted from the darkened cranogs and vaporous whispers. Each time Zanane felt she had honed in close enough to pluck one from the air, another would traipse across her consciousness. She sensed the cruel intention of what they were doing, playing monkey in the middle with a woman half-blind. 
They had an in with her that they hadn't with the other agents. Bureau men who'd been simian through and through. Too thick-skulled to harness any shred of empathy or telepathic ability in a waking state. Zanane, though, they could make a curse of her gift. Just as her kind had gift-wrapped every curse that had set their world asunder. But I am one of you, she insisted. The colony of voices playing keep-away in her head fell silent. All Zanane wanted was one affirmation, one psychic nod. But the empathic ripples of their silence could not have been more clear. They need not think it or say it. Their answer was no. She felt it in her half-dreamer gut, her half-breed heart. At that moment, Zanane could only feel what she was not. Her head stung with their denial, as if she were just another foreign toxin that this poisoned planet was warring against. It hurt more than any of the japes or tortures she'd suffered back home, every last one of those playground barbs that left her youth an open sore. See, monkey, see, monkey, monkey, see, monkey, do, they'd sing-songed, or chatterbox and fishbone on account of her baleen teeth. Back then, she'd always had here to escape to in her head. The promise of an eventual return. Her true home. The womb she'd been plucked from and thrown among the shaven simians. She turned and pushed past the mosquito netting. They will see me, she thought. They'll see we're not so different. But there was doubt there. A fear too unwieldy to simply choke down. What does a human among dreamers, a dreamer among humans, dare dream, she wondered. She tossed and turned restlessly until exhaustion overcame her. She had rounds to make in the morning, deliveries among the Cranogs. Then they will see me, she repeated it like some mantra. A chill ran down her spine, a feeling she thought she'd abandoned with childhood somewhere in the drafty halls of the orphanage a haunted feeling of being pursued upstairs even though she knew she was home alone. And just like then, when she turned around, there was no one there. As the morning sun burned through the mist on the bog, Zanane heard splashing. Through the fog she saw spectral silhouettes pirouetting midair, dreamers plunging off the decks of their cranogs into the marsh. The moisture reawakened the blood vessels that mosaiced their skin, allowing them to breathe. Through the haze, they could almost be mistaken for human children, except for their heads, oblong and gourd-like. Zanane stacked the damp, wilted boxes of toad tar atop her floating travoy. She plunged knee-deep into the bog and waded towards the first cranog. Two dreamers roiled the waters. They surfaced in tandem, two wary, ethereal things dropping back beneath the surface once they realized she had caught sight of them. Morning. She greeted them hoarsely. The last time she'd flexed her vocal cords was back in the taxi. It was a silly compulsion. Dreamers had no mouths, no means of vocalization. Her mind fished around the ether for their thought prints, but they were wily things, much more adept at telepathy than she was. Zanane's psychic abilities were akin to having fallen asleep on your arm too long, a numb, clumsy wielding, all pins and needles. She began to cry, 
The dreamer's evasion, their unintended slight upon her, cut deep. She deposited the first box of toad tar on the porch of the first cranog and moved along. She tried to consciously slow her breathing and allow her skin to shoulder the brunt of respiration. Another compulsion of her human half, breathing. A skin she'd long have shed for another given the opportunity. Her rounds burned through the entire morning. She hadn't seen or heard a soul since the bathers at dawn. She knew others were out there, though. They had to be. Some of the boxes she'd deposited at the Cranogs had already been gnawed through and discarded. She decided to spend her afternoon practicing skin-breathing by immersing herself underwater. Any misstep toward conventional breathing resulted in a hacking lungful of bog muck. It was a powerful deterrent. She closed her eyes. There was something embryonic about the waters. The cool, slimy tickle of seagrass and sediment below, and the masked amber warmth of the sunlight heating the surface waters. It was like dreaming. It was from this place that the voices rose. The dreamers had been dosing. Those who had became encumbered by quicksand dreams, toad-tar conjurations. The opiates managed to sedate the herd so that Zenane might finally walk among them. It was her first genuine taste of what their world might have been like before the simian incursion forced the dreamers to occupy their skins or risk being culled to extinction. Theirs was a mind-tongue unrestrained by the confines of acquired language. Intuitive thought dreams where truth, intention, and meaning were one and the same. You erred in pursuing us up above. It came as a gentle reprimand, but a reprimand nonetheless. That is the predator's way, the trophy killer's stratagem. You are a dreamer, and will manage best when you approach us as such. You must always strive to approach the world as such. Had Zanane not been submerged in the brackish bog waters already, that simple concession, that she was one of them, would have rendered her teary-eyed. There is no need for tears, answered the dreamer to a question Zanane had never posed. We coalesce here, drowned among the tears of the universe, the god-stuff all around. My mother, thought Zanane. How is it that the vessels that once housed us illuminate who we are? What is that secret power they hold? Zanane shrugged. Help me, she pleaded. I am but one voice in the chorus, trilled the voice. The dreamer's tone became guarded, territorial. Male in its aspect, though its corporeal form remained obscured somewhere out in the swamp. One abbreviated chapter in a tome eternal. The dreamer's thoughts became unmoored. It jarred Zanane. Her lungs opened hungrily by force of habit, but there was no air to be had. She thrashed among the reeds, retching up brackish water. She sprang to her feet, her sinuses salt-stung. Zanane swam toward the nearest cranog. A box-top lay torn in two, crushed underfoot outside the cranog door. Someone was home, or had been. 
She cast a psychic line to see if any dreamers might bite. She rapped against the doorframe. No one answered. She pounded her naked fist, three webbed fingers and an opposable thumb. She'd always kept them gloved back home. Bulky welding mitts, hollow pinky fingers jammed with felt so she'd look like everybody else. She'd misplaced them somewhere along the way. She beat at the doorframe a third and final time, so hard that she thought she might dislodge the door jams. Still no one stirred. She pushed past the mosquito netting. There was a mold-speckled cauldron set into the floor, fed by the marsh waters below. Broken skeins of light poured in from the skylight, illuminating the pond scum floating atop the bathwaters in bold blues and greens. There was not a soul in sight, nothing in her head but whispers. Half-imagined shadows gleaned from the corners of her mind's eye. Her psychic hounding rooted out nothing but echoes. Zanane marched back outside and plunged into the bog. The dreamer's evasiveness left her feeling like a frustrated toddler struggling with a childproof cap. Every cranog down the line lay abandoned, the last hut along the track more derelict than the rest, a hobbled frame on splintered stilts half-swallowed by the bog. She'd grown accustomed to the rot of sulfur, but the stench became so pungent here that Zanane reverted to respiring through her skin. The fact that her body hadn't learned to maximize respiration in these oxygen-poor waters left her lightheaded. Zanane heard something slap against the water out back. She paddled beneath the skeletal stilt house. She weaved between its rotting piles. A small plot of marshland out back bubbled like a witch's brew, the gaseous byproduct of whatever lay decomposing beneath. Secrets. Dead things. As the bubbles met the air, they blossomed in bursts of white, hot flame the likes of which Zanane had never seen. Sprightly little soundless sunbursts. The splashing came from a dreamer. An elemental goblin of a thing, slight and white-hot as the flames through which he knit his body. The dreamer capered like some grampus calf forged of silver light, frolicking among the flame as if it were his playmate. It was her first good glimpse of a dreamer his smooth-featured face with neither mouth nor snout, his oblong skull, his tea-saucer eyes on either side of his head, just like hers. His lean, argent frame was spotted vermilion where the fires had licked him. His hands were gauntleted and clumsy, tattered things, her welding mitts that had gone missing. He barreled across her thoughts with none of the grace he exhibited flame-dancing. The intense psychic push nearly floored her. She concentrated, needling into his head. "'You ought to be more careful,' she scolded. She got a cold shoulder in return. "'The flames, I mean, they're nothing to toy with.' He dropped to all fours, chest deep in the bog. He studied her sideways and shook himself off like a hosed-down dog. His thoughts murmured right through her. "'I suppose you've come for your gloves.' Your kind always comes for a reason, don't they? I don't need them, she conceded. You've lost something, though. Can you lose something you never had? At first she thought it might be a question this dreamer had implanted in her mind, but then she remembered. She had forged it herself. Pigs don't miss their wings, nor people their antlers, 
Do they? The dreamer had been listening. He was inside her head. She could feel him there. Where are the others? she asked. Around. Why do you hazard the flames like that? Funny, you don't look like my mother, he prodded. Stop acting like it. No, I'm not. Mother, she thought. Are you still here? Out there somewhere? The dreamer cocked his head. He pivoted into the air, just as the bubbling marsh beneath him belched flame. I hazard the fire because there's no other choice. We have no choice. None of us. The flames only serve as a reminder. He projected his thoughts boldly across the tattered screen of her mind. It's not death that frightens you anyway, is it? It's the part you're looking for. You're looking for your past to do your living for you. Is that why you came here? Safe harbor? Zanane clawed at the kerchief on her head. She gave the dreamer a mental push, but he was just too agile. She was a neophyte. You're insufferable! She said it rather than thinking it. It's a blessing that evolution neglected to grant you a mouth. Maybe I hold on to death as tightly as you do the past. Maybe it's my security blanket. Will it be purposeful or ordered when it finally comes? A tidy closing up of my life's chapter? His thoughts were encumbered by sadness. It's really nothing more than tossing a psalm book into a paper shredder for any of us, is it? A bubble hatched from the fen's surface, spewing a white-hot pinwheel into the air. The air ignited in a flash of blinding silver light. There was no telling where the fire blossomed and the dreamer ended. Zanane was snow-blind, her skin tautened, sun-poisoned. She staggered unseeing through suffocating smog, a wide-awake dream from which the dreamer was absent. Only Zanane's charred welding gloves remained behind, quivering atop a ragged film of pond scum. She loosed a psychic scream, frozen, listening for a splash, a ripple, a break in the water, any sign of the fire dancer. Anything. The explosion had rendered the whole tract one skeletal train of brittle black reed, houses hollow as an orphanage. Her boots sloshed as the fuming wallow swallowed her steps. A squall rose in her head, a droning that drowned out the rhythmic suction of her soles in the muck. The water cleared some and crested at her waist. Something wavered just beneath the surface, but when Zanane cast a thought toward it, the fey creature darted away. She saw arms and legs, a flash of viridescence. She dove in pursuit of the thing amidst a flurry of wild dolphin kicks. She was far from adept as a swimmer, but the waters somehow fit her like a well-worn mitt. She took air through her skin so as not to tire her lungs. The world below the surface was a murky, mute clash of light and shadow. Her target made for a submerged cranog that collapsed and been swallowed by the bog. Weaving her way through a cage of moss-bearded, buckled stilts, Zanane cut open her arm on a jagged pile. Salt water bit the deep, throbbing gash. Zanane wriggled into the sunken den, blind. There was a solid meter at the ceiling that was not submerged. 
Zanane popped her head up and let her eyes adapt to the darkness. The Cranog lacked the quintessential dreamer's skylight. She presumed it must have once served as a supply closet or alien agent's barracks. Something brushed against her. As her eyes adjusted, Zanane realized, impossibly, what she was seeing. Her own reflection. Disconnected. Except there was no light. Except... She stared so intently at the drowned, solitary silhouette in the water that she could see brine shrimp darting across the clouded green glass of its face and realized she had no mouth. It was not her, after all. Not a her like the her whose eyes she stared through, at least, forged from flesh and bone. Words bubbled up impossibly from the shallows. Audibly. Zanane reached out to take hold of the woman, but her arms passed through her as if she were water herself. Some primordial fist gripped Zanane's brain, constricting her thoughts into a honking, swarming gridlock. They came... Like you, the hunters, beasts of solitary intention. Zanane never heard a voice so sad. She dared not even think. She did not want to risk scaring off the skittish thing. Our crime was that they did not know how to listen. They only knew how to talk, your kind, with their guns and trills jabbering men blind to their own reflections. Such a dangerous thing. There was a spiteful lilt in her voice. There are those without eyes who see more than humankind. Zanane responded telepathically, a stringent refusal of her simian parts. Where does that leave me, then? Midway between you and them? she asked. Am I both? Neither? She gritted her baleen teeth and exhaled deeply through her human lungs. The act elicited a nervous whistle. Our bodies require scant sustenance. We virtually live on dreams alone. While your simian forebears suffer from a sort of psychic malnourishment. A lack of imagination, to put it bluntly. So willingly tethered to this corporeal plane, its laws and its limitations. Like dragonflies whose noisy kingdom extends no deeper than the water's surface. In short, you are both neither, and both. The dreamer cast shadows against the flensed walls of the half-breed's consciousness showing Zanane her people's coming as it had happened, a lone hunting-dozer puttering across the skies, hoisting the dreamers from slumber. The dreamers loosed psychic beacons offering the strangers safe harbor, their message met by a wall of fear-kilned aggression, a hunger honed by being set adrift too long. These were children nurtured at the rancid tit of an ambivalent universe. These humanoids were host to a malignant, alien agent. These were creatures weaned on pain and separation. Rabid dogs that had only known the lash. She was not yet a mother. The hunters first took the dreamers for abhorrent sea vegetables, 
twisted effigies of the bipedal form, otherworldly mandrake fed by brackish waters and an alien sun. Commodities to be harvested, never afforded the benefit of the doubt. The stranger's thoughts diffused a psychic toxin that smoked the dreamers from their cranogs. The predators gave chase. The dreamers skittered and wove across the collective web of their consciousness, spinning persuasion, suggestion, and illusion in a frantic dash to wheedle the stranger's untamed minds. But these visitors were creatures so clouded that they were incapable of seeing any reflection other than their own in the multiverse. They'd been forever on the outside looking in, and knew nothing else. She was not yet a mother. She'd stayed buried in her cranog when she'd heard the din of angry voices and felt the gossamer of her tribe unraveling strand by strand. The hunter swatted through the skein of mosquito netting, a furious thing in jackboots. He racked the pump of his hand cannon. She scoured his mind. Even these curious things were not unfazed by beauty, surely. She fashioned herself into one of his own, a fey creature pleasing to the human eye, cobbled from hips, eyelashes, nut-brown skin. But that did not sate him. His flurried fists and pistol whips brought all the pain of the waking world down upon her, until she could barely think or feel or move. And then the monster climbed on top of her. "'Mother!' screeched Zenane. She flailed her fists at air, hoping to beat back the nightmare playing out against the hollows of her head. Zenane had never dreamed a human child could be conceived without a father, even a half-human one. But she had been. She had only a mother, and this monster that spawned her. Zenane swatted the black water. She'd unearthed her past, but it hadn't been the past she'd wanted. Hatched from irredeemable violence, inhumanity, sprung from the death of dreams. The water felt cold, impossibly cold. Her mother's voice bubbled up from the blind depths. It's only echoes, she consoled her. You can't go pinning echoes to the walls of your memory like hunting trophies. I only wanted to figure out who I was sulked Zanane. She refused to say it. Her psychic mouthpiece suited her best. Her mother's tongue. You needn't travel so far. You've long known what you are. Now you've found out where you're from. You just didn't like the answer. But the who of the matter? That's a riddle you've always carried with you. What you've salvaged here... Will it make you love yourself any more? Your dreamer's eyes, the heel of your head, the viridescent hue of your flesh, your human mouth or heart? I'm a mistake, she thought. We're more than the sum of our mistakes, more than the flotsam of others' missteps. There are some good parts, too. The waters began to waver. Her mother's silhouette dissipated like sea foam. Zanane's own reflection beneath it, impossibly phosphorescent in the pitch black of the sunken cranog. You can go right ahead and be that stillborn dream you see yourself as. Or a dream realized, for whatever that's worth. 
warts and all. Zanane took the air through her skin and plunged beneath the surface. The ghosts and their echoes had all gone silent, and there was so little light here. But there was some light, and that's all she needed. And there you go. Big huge thank you to Jim. James, thank you very much there. James, Edward O'Brien, Alexi, an original of Starships over. And Andy, hey Andy, just kind of, that's fantastic. Merry Christmas, lad. Merry Christmas to both of you. That's just amazing. Thank you, Andy. So now, yes, with me little Christmas card, put up on me desk there. <laughs> Tinsel when ready, it's our Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I would like to talk about a new series called Genre Fiction and Film Companions that are out from Peter Lang International Academic Publishers. And the reason I want to focus on these companions is because the four volumes that are out now two published in 2018, two in 2019, are all relevant to science fiction. The stated purpose of these genre film and fiction companions is to, quote, provide accessible introductions to key texts within the most popular genres of our time. Written by leading scholars in the field, brief essays on individual texts offer innovative ways of understanding, interpreting, and reading, invaluable for students, teachers, and fans alike. These surveys offer new insights into the most important literary works, films, music, events, and more within genre fiction and film." Now, what I have found really fascinating going through the table of contents and the particular subjects underscored in the different essays in these volumes is seeing a kind of roadmap or snapshot of how science fiction and science fiction adjacent subjects are being viewed today in terms of genre history, in terms of the relationship between, say, Western or English language works and world works. Really just, I think, the series offers an accessible look at where scholarship is right now and how critics are thinking about genre. And yes, <laughs> I do have a personal stake in this game, which I will mention later, my connection to this series. It is small, but hopefully useful. Given that these are academic works, and given that they are available in both hard copy and ebook formats, I would think, too, that these works are fairly accessible through libraries or interlibrary loan. They are new, but they are not immediately just off the press. So let's cover these in order, shall we? First, let's crack open the book The Gothic, A Companion, which is edited by Simon Bacon. Now, I've talked for years in my segments here on Starship Sofa, about the relationship between the Gothic and science fiction. That I would argue, in fact, and many others have as well, that the Gothic is one of those ingredients that helped science fiction actually come into being in the first place. And I think the relationship is shown pretty clearly here. First, let me read you the official description of the anthology. 
What is the Gothic? From ghosts to vampires, from ruined castles to steampunk fashion, the Gothic is a term that evokes all things strange, haunted, and sinister. This volume offers a new look at the world of the Gothic, from its origins in the 18th century to its reemergence today. Each short essay is dedicated to a single text, a novel, a film, a comic book series, a festival, that serves as a lens to explore the genre. Original readings of classics like The Mysteries of Udolpho, Anne Radcliffe, and Picnic at Hanging Rock, Joan Lindsay, are combined with unique insights into contemporary examples like the music of Mexican rock band Caifanes, the novels Annihilation, Jeff Vandermeer, Goth, Otsuchi, and The Paying Guests, Sarah Waters, and the films Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro, and Ex Machina, Alex Garland. Together, the essays provide innovative ways of understanding key texts in terms of their gothic elements. Invaluable for students, teachers, and fans alike, the book's accessible style allows for an engaging look at the spectral and uncanny nature of the gothic. So there's the official blurb. And you can see there that works of science fiction, such as Jeff Vandermeer's work Annihilation and Alex Garland's retelling of Frankenstein, or at least reimagining of Frankenstein, the film Ex Machina, are there front and center as examples of modern Gothic storytelling. Modern Gothic storytelling that also happens to be science fiction. Several things are going on in this volume that make me very happy. The editor clearly had a good sense of the historical roots of the genre, some of the topics for the essays go back well, as they should, into the 18th century, but also a sense of where the genre is going. And the answer there is science fiction. There is a section on ideologies, imperialism, and the Gothic. And the earliest work there that is discussed is Charles Brockton Brown's Wyland, or The Transformation, from 1798, in an essay by James Peacock. Another section, America and the Gothic. Another section, Gothic Territories, covering topics from Mexican Gothic to Japanese Gothic. Another section, Gender, Sexuality, and the Gothic. And that goes all the way back to the mother of the Gothic, Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho, with an essay by Kathleen Hudson. And Matthew Lewis's The Monk from 1796, in an essay by Max Stincher. There's a section on media and mediums of the Gothic, and that includes works that we might think of as science fiction, including Cormac McCarthy's The Road from 2006, in an essay by Lorna Pieta Farnell. I hope that's somewhere in the region of the proper pronunciation. Sorry about that. And lastly, the Gothic Futures section. It discusses not only works I've already mentioned, with essays dedicated to Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation from Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock and Alex Garland's Ex Machina by Simon Bacon, the editor himself, but also other works of science fiction, including uh, China Mieville's Perdido Street Station from 2000 in an essay by Sarah Wasson, 
and Max Brooks's World War Z from 2006 in an essay by Lenny Blake, and Koji Suzuki's Edge from 2012 in an essay by Alana Gomel. Note that these different essays, when you put them together, they're not meant to be exhaustive or encyclopedic in the sense of covering every possible topic. Instead, they are covering specific works that then exemplify larger points they're trying to make about genre. So all of this is to say that not only could one make the argument, and I have tried, and hopefully I have done so successfully, that the Gothic is directly related to the origin of science fiction, modern science fiction at least, but also current scholarship, current thought about genre, links the past, present, and most certainly future of Gothic storytelling to science fiction. And hey, I find that to be pretty exciting. But talk about exciting, let's move on to the second volume, because this is about a new, or at least new-ish, concept in science fiction, and that is cli-fi. Cli-Fi, A Companion, was edited by Axel Goodbody and Adeline Jans-Putra in 2018, and here is the official description of that companion anthology. What is Cli-Fi? Climate change fiction is a new literary phenomenon that emerged at the turn of the 21st century in response to what may be society's greatest challenge— Climate change is already part responsible for extreme weather events, flooding, desertification, and sea level rise, leading to famine, the spread of disease, and population displacement. Cli-fi novels and films are typically set in the future, telling of disaster and its effects on humans, or they depict the present beset by dilemmas, conflicts, or conspiracies, and pointing to grave consequences. At their heart are ethical and political questions. Will humankind rise to the challenge of acting collectively in the interest of the future? What sacrifices will be necessary? And is a green dictatorship our only hope for survival as a species? Each chapter in this volume offers a way of reading a particular literary text or film, drawing attention to themes, formal features, reception, contribution to public debate, and issues for class discussion. Popular novels and films. Kim Stanley Robinson's Science in the Capital trilogy, Michael Crichton's State of Fear, Ian McEwan's Solar, and The Day After Tomorrow, are examined alongside lesser-known writing. For instance, J.G. Ballard's proto-climate change novel, The Drowned World, and Antti Tuomainen's Finnish thriller, The Healer. And films not generally thought of as being about climate change, Frozen, and Take Shelter. The book, which includes an introduction tracing the emergence and influence of cli-fi, is directed towards general readers and film enthusiasts, as well as teachers and students, Written in an accessible style, it fills the gap between academic studies and online blogs, offering a comprehensive look at this timely new genre. So that official description, I think, does a great job of sort of introducing the concept of climate change science fiction. And I would point out that J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World is really the first work 
that has its own essay dedicated to it in the proto-climate change fiction section. I'm totally down with Ballard having this kind of recognition, and for that matter, the movement of which he was a part, the new wave. That makes perfect sense. Would I have loved to have seen an essay dedicated to 19th century, early 20th century, environmental collapse, environmental disaster, environmental apocalypse fiction before we had the vocabulary of environmentalism and certainly of climate change. Yes, yes, I would have. But, you know, you can't do everything in one book, and I appreciate that, too. So the essays in this anthology are grouped into sections including proto-climate change fiction, speculative future fiction, dystopian and post-apocalyptic narratives, one perhaps instantly identifiable work discussed there, Paolo Bagicalupi's The Wind-Up Girl from 2009. Realist narratives set in the present and near future. That's where Kim Stanley Robinson shows up. Thriller, crime, conspiracy, and social satire. Children's film and young adult novels. And lastly, literary modernism. Another possibly familiar work that exemplifies this section is an essay on David Brin's Earth from 1990. But these works covered really bump up to the present day. Almost, almost all of them, most of them at least, are late 20th and 21st century works. And I think it's interesting that in a series here that are, is focusing on established genres that cli-fi is recognized as something that has enough of a tradition and enough immediate import, for that matter, that it deserves its own volume. So I think that, too, is, is exciting. Now, I just want to say a quick word about the third volume, the first that was published in 2019, in this series of genre fiction and film companions from Peter Lang. It is called Horror, a Companion, and it's edited by Simon Bacon. And in the official blurb, it describes horror as a genre that gives shape to the particular anxieties of society, but also reveals the fundamental nature of what it is to be human. And I think, in a sense, that also does a good job of describing science fiction. While this is the least science fictional of the four volumes to date, uh, there are places where the subject matter overlaps with science fiction. The work is divided into a section on approaches to horror, media and mediums of horror, Categories of contemporary horror, national and cross-cultural horror in the 21st century, horror authors and their contemporary afterlives. And there are some works of science fiction, or at least science fiction adjacent or relevant uh, or crossover works, discussed in some of these sections. There's an essay, for example, on Tin Cloverfield Lane from 2016, the film. There are essays that also focus on the series Stranger Things that began in 2016 and is still going today, and the series Altered Carbon that began in 2018 and is still going today. So, in short, there are some overlaps in this 
particular anthology, not as many as in the first two, the Gothic and the Cli-Fi anthology, but still perhaps relevant to your interests. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> there is one essay that I was particularly taken with that I thought was very useful for my own work and knowledge. That is an essay by Carl H. Saderholm called Craftion's Cosmic Reawakening. It's about the debut album of the band, Craftion. The album itself is Cosmic Reawakening. It's from 2017, and it is inspired by... H.P. Lovecraft's works of cosmic horror. And I think we've talked before, I know we've talked before, about how that cosmic turn really brought something truly science fictional to weird fiction. And in this essay, Saderholm is talking about the way that the album, the concept album, Cosmic Reawakening, sort of questions the reality of what human beings see, hear, and experience, and works in the cosmic turn that Lovecraft brought to weird fiction into music in a different and interesting kind of way. So I was delighted to find this essay. I hope just looking at this overview of these first three books in the series is useful in thinking about how people today are talking about genre. But I want to wait and discuss the sci-fi, science fiction companion, in my next Looking Back into Genre History. We will look at that one in a bit more depth, and I can also tell you a bit about my relationship to that volume. And then we'll move on to something completely different. But for now, I would like to thank you for sticking with me and listening to my segments for this past year. And I wish you the happiest of celebrations as 2019 comes to a close and the very, very best for 2020. I look forward to joining you in the new year, talking about sci-fi, a companion, and lots and lots of other things when we once again get together to take another look back into genre history. Thank you. And Amy, thank you so much. Oh, oh you just that big hug, big kind of brotherly hug, the big squeeze, you know, the squeeze down your rub your the top of your head. <laughs> Happy Christmas. Right, that is it for this show. I hope you enjoyed it. Do think we are kind of running up to the, you know this kind of festive? Give a little kind of little few presents to starships over there and support what on Patreon. That would be fantastic. I bloody would as well. Be unreal. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moaning, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you.
speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you I'll get out there by and by. 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 I'll get out there by and by.